0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. How do non human minds think? Acclaimed science writer Philip Ball provides a whistle stop tour of the kinds of minds that might exist in the universe, and how these might be similar to and different from our own. Philip Ball is a science writer and broadcaster. He is a former editor of the journal Nature and a prolific author of popular science books. Ball's 2004 book Critical Mass won the Aventis Prize and in the same year he presented Small Worlds, a three-part series on nanotechnology for BBC Radio 4. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. It's now time to welcome Philip Ball to Philosophy for Our Times. In
1: 1984, the computer scientist Aaron Sloman published a paper arguing that we need more systematic thinking about minds. And he said it was time to admit into that conversation what we had learned about animal cognition, um, as well as what research on AI and computer science had told us. He said, clearly there's not just one sort of mind, besides obvious differences between adults. There are differences between adults, children of various ages, and infants. There are cross-cultural differences. There are also differences between humans, chimpanzees, dogs, mice, and other animals. And there are differences between all those and machines. Um, And his paper was entitled The Structure of the Space of Possible Minds. And he was arguing that minds exist not just along a a line that measures something like intelligence, but in a rich multidimensional space, This blending of computer science and behaviorism must have seemed a bit eccentric in the 1980s, but today it looks astonishingly prescient. Although this cartography of the space of possible minds has barely begun, this is a really good time to start thinking about what it might look like. Not only has AI at last started to prove its value, but there's a perception that making further improvements to AI and getting anything like artificial, like general AI, um, human-like AI, will require a close consideration of how today's putative machine minds actually function and how they differ from our own. And our understanding of animal cognition, too, has gotten much richer in the past decades or two, in part because of the possibilities that neuroscience and information technologies have opened up. And so today we can find child psychologists talking to roboticists and computer engineers and neurologists talking to marine biologists. We have some of the conceptual tools and some of the experimental tools to start mapping out this landscape of minds. I I guess I need to start by asking that difficult question, what is a mind? And uh, we have to admit there is no scientific definition that's going to help us here. Most of the vast literature that exists on the philosophy of mind just takes it for granted that we're talking about us. Okay, um, The philosopher Daniel Dennett, um, he uh, started thinking in this way in his book, Kinds of Mind. And he said that whatever else a mind is, it is something like our minds. Otherwise, we wouldn't call it a mind. Mind is one of those concepts, like, like intelligence, like thought, like life, um, that sounds kind of technical, but it's actually a bit fuzzy and, and colloquial. Now, I propose to talk about it in a similar way to the way John Searle, the philosopher of mind, talked about consciousness. I'm saying that for an entity to have a mind, there must be something it is like to be that entity. So I don't believe that, you know, this glass has a mind. I don't think it has an experience. I don't think that uh, asking what it's like to be this glass means anything at all. On the other hand, I reckon that most people are probably ready to accept that, say, an orangutan has a mind. You might consider there's something it is like to be a mouse, perhaps even a fly. Maybe a fungus? Uh, Maybe that's pushing it a bit too far, although we'll return to that question uh, in a bit. Um, And I think it makes sense to speak then not in terms of things that absolutely do or don't have a mind, but of mindedness, to to, to acknowledge that it's not an all or nothing attribute. It's a matter of degree. And one of the benefits of thinking about a space of possible minds is that we can think about those matters of degree in many attributes, many different dimensions, coordinates of that space. And let me illustrate um, what this might mean by just uh, telling you about a couple of efforts to say what mind space might look like previously. So a simple and ingenious way to start drawing this map was devised by some American psychologists, Daniel Wegner, Kurt Gray and Heather Gray in 2007. They simply asked people what people thought about what minds were like. Minds not just of humans, but also things like robots and companies and supernatural agents, ghosts and God. Um, what attributes do we think they have? Surprisingly, the responses they got could be boiled down to a space of possible minds that had just two key attributes labelled that they labelled experience and agency. And here, experience means how much inner life the entity has. So a capacity for things like fear and pain and hunger and pleasure and joy The agency, meanwhile, refers to the ability to do things, to accomplish goals, to possess memory, to plan and communicate. So really, this was a space of possible perceived minds, what we humans imagine that space might look like. And it could be, because it just had these two dimensions, you could plot it as a sort of two-dimensional graph on which every kind of mind could be a, a single data point on that graph. And it was striking that one of the things that came out of this was that people think that there isn't just a place where human minds go, that we actually have a trajectory that we follow through life. So babies were in one place. They were actually rated by people as having a higher experience than an adult mind, but much lower agency. So, you know, for a baby, everything is intensely felt, but they don't get much done. Um, and so we follow that trajectory, you know, as children, and then we get to the human mind. And interestingly, even when we die, people perceive that we don't leave the map. There's a space on that map where people think dead people are. And an- another attempt to plot out a space of minds has been made by the neuroscientist Christoph Koch. His mind space is also two-dimensional. He gives it coordinates of intelligence and consciousness. So we have both, and in terms of uh, thinking about animals, it's actually quite a simple plot. It's just a kind of diagonal line where we're sort of up here at the top with the most amount of intelligence and consciousness, and then other animals, you know, dogs and cats, and then you get all the way down to jellyfish, sort of down here, are on there. But Christoph also thought we can put other things in this space. We can put, for example, um, AI and and computers, which, uh, in his view, have intelligence, but don't have really any significant consciousness at all. And he feels that actually that's not likely to change anytime soon, perhaps never. Now, in both of these uh, mind spaces, we are sort of up there in the top right corner. So we have the maximum amount of these attributes. And we're really assessing all other minds relative to us and how they, you know, comparing them to how they they compare with us. Well, that's just the way we are, right? We're egotists. But perhaps that's inevitable. As Dennett says, it's hard to even think about what minds might mean unless it's in reference to our own. So let's start thinking about our own minds. The philosopher Ned Block um, also suggested there are two attributes of human minds. But his were intelligence, which he, by which he meant an information processing capacity that turns a stimulus into a behavior, and intentionality. And intentionality uh, supplies the purpose and the motive for that behavior by somehow relating it to the world around us. Dennett argues that to have intentions means that the mind must be a generator of expectations and predictions. You know, what else is an intention but a, a hope, a wish for certain outcomes in the future, certain outcomes that we consider to be at least possible. Dennett says that the mind... Mines the present for clues, which it refines with the help of materials it has saved from the past, turning them into anticipations of the future. And then it acts rationally on the basis of those hard-won anticipations. And this view of the human mind as a predictor, I think, suggests how it differs from a machine-like stimulus response system. Because not only are our decisions and predictions often, as you might have noticed, rather poor for actually obtaining our goals, but most of the time we're not even sure what the goal really is. Or rather, we might have many conflicting goals and not the slightest idea of how to calculate a route between them. And I'd suggest that our minds, as well as those of other animals, are not stimulus response circuits, machine-like uh, systems for creating actions. But they're actually the alternative to that sort of automaton-like behavior. The simplest organisms, like bacteria, um, are, they often show behavior that is, is hardwired. They have a very limited repertoire of actions uh, that are generated reliably and predictably by certain stimuli from the environment. Now, even that is simplifying it for bacteria. They're more complex than that, but you can see that that's the kind of behavior they tend to have. Our minds exist, I think, to free us from that, to free us, if you like, from our genetic hardwiring by allowing us actions that aren't pre-programmed. The amazing thing about humans is not that our genes affect the way we think and the choices we make, they undoubtedly do, But how much of our behavior seems to escape their dominating influence? Complex minds have a vast repertoire uh, of behaviors that can be fine-tuned and adjusted and actually improvised to the circumstances. And actually, this makes evolutionary sense, because if evolution wants to give a creature, to put it very anthropomorphically, wants to give a creature lots of behavioral options for surviving in a complex environment, then it can either invest a lot in hardwiring a response to every foreseeable circumstance, or, and this seems a much more efficient way to do things, or it can build that creature a mind. And what's odd though, is that the intelligence that we're endowed with, we humans, seems so broad. And I don't mean that as a boast on the part of my species. I'm the first to admit to the many dumb things we do. But it's frankly rather bizarre that a brain that's adapted by Darwinian evolution should be capable of thinking up the theory of general relativity. And no one knows why evolution made such a cognitive investment in us. One prominent idea that a lot of people favor is that um, our minds became so complex because uh, of the experience of living in a community with others. What distinguishes us us most uh, in the animal kingdom is social intelligence. Other evolutionary biologists think that the richness of human cognition has less to do with a sort of generalized ability to get on with everyone and is more to do with the specific challenge of finding a mate, that it's a product of sexual selection. So the idea here is that a complex repertoire of behaviors might persuade a potential mate that this individual might be actually quite good at the survival game. And in this view... Human intelligence might be a bit like the peacock's tail or the stag's antlers, a trait that got blown out of all proportion relative to what was strictly needed to do the job. Others think that human intelligence is not so much about biology, but about culture, that our intelligence took off in parallel with our ability to pass on skills and learning and technologies to successive generations. After all, what distinguishes us most from other animals is not our basic cognitive skills, but the complexity of our societies and the complexity of, in particular, our language, our means of communication. And this open-ended, imaginative nature of human cognition might be just what we need to to cope with the greater part of what our existence has always been about, which is choices that never end and that have no absolute right answer. So living isn't a computation, it's a a process, a constant flow of interrelated decisions and actions and emotions. And the mind is more like a pilot than a computer. And the pilot's task is not to solve reality, but to land the plane. And what it needs to do that is a representation of the world that it must navigate. And that representation doesn't have to be perfect, it just has to be good enough. Um, And likewise for our decisions. They're not computations of some optimum action which might be very time-consuming to compute even if it exists at all. Instead, we use shortcuts, we use rules of thumb to make decisions that we hope are going to be generally good enough. The um, psychologist Elizabeth Spelke has proposed that we do this using a small number of what she calls core knowledge systems. So one of these is the ability to conceptualize objects as things that hold together as, you know, particular entities and which are going to continue to persist in space and time, whether or not we're, we're, we're observing them. We also have a spatial sense. You know, we, we experience things as being nearer or further from us and in certain directions relative to us. Other core systems deal with actions, with our ability to affect things and with things like number and quantity. And Spelke suggests that a particularly important core system it relates to social interactions. It supplies the basis for our intuitive psychology, which recognizes other people, um, other beings really, as agents with minds and intentions and goals of their own, which may or may not align with our own. And this is really what psychologists call a theory of mind. That is not a theory about what a mind is, but, uh, but our own sense that other minds exist, other entities have them, and that they probably work a bit like ours. So this then is, is what I think seems most to characterize the human mind, that it evolved to enable a more more diversity of behavior than you can realistically expect from a sort of stimulus-response hardwired system. It solves problems that aren't computable, and it may be that the emotions have a role in that. It does that by constructing some kind of representation in the mind of the world we experience, and from that we predict possible futures. And it exists and knows that it exists in relation to other minds. So I'd suggest that here we've got some sort of schematic outline for thinking more generally about what minds could be, at least the other evolved minds that we know about, like the minds of animals. Now, the nature of an animal mind defines what is known as its umwelt. In effect, that's the world that the creature inhabits, characterized by certain needs, certain concerns and capabilities. So the umwelt is really what stands out for a creature. The, the things that it notices. So, for example, smell is a much smaller part of our umwelt than it is for dogs. We're less sensitive to it, but also smell means less to us. In the umwelt of a slug, a, a, a piece of flint, say, I'm guessing here, I don't really know what slugs think, but I'm guessing that it's just an obstacle to be negotiated. Whereas for our ancestors, a flint has much more you could say, much more affordance than that. It's a potential tool. Um, The Umwelt also includes things that we recognize as specific objects. So for us, you know, we recognize a woodland path and a patio. For a vault, again, I'm guessing, there are just uh, distinctions between open spaces, which are a bit dangerous, and more vegetated spaces, which are a bit safer. The Umwelt of a European robin includes some kind of awareness, and we don't really know what that means, of the Earth's magnetic field. And it's from the umwelt that a creature builds its conception of the world. That's really the organisational framework of its mind. It's really what that mind finds meaningful. The umwelt of a flying creature, I mean, this is a fascinating thing to consider. What on earth does that look like? It's certainly alien to us. And in fact, the bird world is one of the richest repositories of minds. The cognitive skills of birds are astonishingly diverse. You know, amongst them, we find maybe the best claims for non-mammal consciousness, as well as examples of artistry that raise questions about animal aesthetics and some of the most complex vocalizations in the natural world and prodigious feats of memory and tool use. Um, So I think we'd actually find bird minds scattered rather widely through the space of possible minds You know, some birds are, you could say, mind-blind to things that dominate the umwelt of other birds. Um, And uh, even sometimes rather closely related bird species show very different cognitive abilities. And I think this illustrates that minds don't come as a package that is simply passed down the evolutionary chain. They're strongly adapted and shaped by the specific evolutionary niches and strategies that each creature adopts. And this this property of tool use, this ability of tool use, is one of the most striking attributes of, uh, of birds. Aside from several primates and elephants and cephalopods, birds are the only other major group of tool users, and the champion of avian tool use are the corvids especially the New Caledonian crow. So corvids, I think, ravens, and rooks and crows. Um, it's possible that some of this tool use is just trial and error. So they, they, they rely less on imagined scenarios like, oh, I bet if I poked this with, with a stick, I could get those bugs out. And more on just trial and error. Like the last time I did this, I was able to get the food. Okay, there is that distinction. But it's not all try and see. There do seem to be some general principles behind bird use, a kind of intuitive physics that birds have. And we can find out about these, these, uh, the, the, these uh, properties in geodes in experiments that sort of probe how birds retrieve food from within tubes using sort of pistons and tools and so on. We can sort of understand how they conceptualize it. And one key question is whether they actually have any sort of causal inference. So whether they understand that what they have done is somehow caused in a mechanical way or is just summoned by a certain action in a sort of ritualistic way. Um, So in other words, what we're thinking about in making that distinction is really the distinction between different modes of thinking produced by different kinds of minds. And one of the key questions also about tool use is whether birds can carry out multi-step tasks with an ultimate goal in mind. Because, you see, in order to do that, you have to have some vision of the future. There has been a view that all animals live in a sort of perpetual present. But I think bird tool use challenges that idea. They have some sense of what might come later and how to prepare for it. And you can see that, for example, in the food caching behavior of, of uh, jays. Scrub jays are the uh, are masterful at this. So they leave little sort of stashes of food around for later use. And in one experiment, scrub jays were kept in two compartments. And uh, they were always they, they, they got used to the idea that, you know, each morning they would sort of wake up in one compartment or the other and were trained to know that one compartment would have food in and the other wouldn't. And then they were allowed the night before to feed on food and then to cache some of it. And they always cached the food in the compartment that they had learned from experience wouldn't have food in in the morning, just in case that was where they woke up. So it's very hard to see how they would have done that without some sense of that future possibility. Now, if we want to explore further afield in mind space, then one of the most intriguing uh, minds in the animal world are those of cephalopods, of octopus and squid in particular. Um, because these are invertebrate mollusks that diverge from the vertebrates from, um, from, from our lineage long, long ago, 600 million years ago, before the Canberra explosion. Octopuses possess all kinds of abilities. They can problem solve. They even seem to have a sort of cunning and personality. They're exploratory. They don't shun unfamiliar experiences. They actually play about with things. They learn how to navigate mazes, how to unscrew jars, how to fuse laboratory lights that they don't like sort of shining at them. They appear to hoard objects just in case they might be useful. We don't really, well, we don't really know why they're hoarding them. Um, if our habitual division of uh, mind and body is increasingly unhelpful for understanding the human mind, then it really makes no sense for octopuses because the body has, if not a mind of its own, then a sort of set of proto-minds in each arm. More than half of the neurons in the octopus are in the arms. And although it has a centralized brain, it seems that the arms have some kind of uh, autonomous decision-making capacity that even includes a sort of degree of memory. So we're not even sure if the octopus knows what its limbs are doing or what they're going to do. And as a result, it might even lack a strong sense of self. We might even imagine that it's sometimes kind of watching its limbs do things as though they're other creatures. And so that challenges the notion that the the mind has to be a tightly integrated whole. Um, to, To wonder what it might be like to be an octopus might then depend on which bit of the octopus we're asking. And one theory is that cephalopods, the ancestors of cephalopods, actually had two separate minds, uh, one for the arms and one for the eyes, and they eventually merged together. At any rate, they represent an entirely different evolutionary experiment in building minds. And the common ancestor that we share from them, if we go all the way back there, it wouldn't have had much of a mind at all. It was probably a kind of a flatworm with a very rudimentary nervous system. And uh, nerve cells might be the building block of biological minds, but that's probably not what they were evolved for originally. They were probably just a way of communicating between cells over long distances very quickly. And they do that electrically, of course, by building up and transmitting um, electrical potentials, by controlling the flow of charged ions across their membranes. And some researchers suspect that that electrical sensitivity, what what physiologists used to call irritability, imbues nerve cells themselves with the ingredients of sentience. So for example, the informatics expert Norman Cook has suggested that a nerve cell, by opening up its membrane to the flow of ions across it, it's breaking the hermetic seal between the cell itself and the environment outside. And this opening up the environment, he thinks, might be in itself enough to generate a kind of proto-feeling. Perhaps there might even be something it is like to be a single neuron. And so in this view, brains and minds and cognition are kind of aggregates of these atoms of sentience. And some biologists argue that mindedness is actually an inherent property of most, if not all, living systems, Some plants do things that minded creatures do. They have goals. They're flexible and adaptive. Um, uh, And some people have argued that we need a discipline that they call plant neurobiology. And that perhaps even plants can experience a kind of pain, a kind of aversion to things that happen to them. And plant neurobiologists say that to deny plants intelligence can increasingly look like a special pleading. You know, on what grounds do we do that? I would suggest that perhaps some of, the distinct, some of the distinction we're talking about here is not so much about minds, but about agency, about how living things accomplish goals. And it's really striking to me that biology lacks a theory of how agency arises and what it is, because I think it's fair to say that all minds have agency, but I'm not sure that all agents have minds. And that's a talk in itself I, I don't have time for. Um, but I hope, hope you can see that these considerations sort of suggest that we, ha- we, aren't, we aren't even close to making AI systems that uh, are, are, at the moment uh, justify a description as having minds. Um, it's, it's often said that today's AI finds hard what we find easy and vice versa, that AI lacks common sense. Well, I think it's a better way to talk about that, to say that AI uses a different mode of cogitation, a different mode of mindedness, you could say. Um, So, you know, this common sense that we talk about is really about these sort of intuitive uh, instincts we have for a kind of physics of things and a kind of uh, psychology of things. And you're not going to get that in AI simply by making it, you know, packing more more circuits into them. It's a little bit like thinking that if you make an airplane that flies faster and faster, eventually it's going to lay an egg it's likely that we're actually going to have to build those capacities into AI. And more and more people in AI are thinking that's what's going to be necessary. I wish I could wrap up by sort of drawing you a picture of what I think this mind space looks like and you know, point to our place within it. But any maps like this that we make at the moment are a bit like medieval medieval maps of the world. So they're kind of fairly accurate in our neighborhood. They're a bit sketchy in the land's bordering ours, And then out there, we haven't a clue. And we sort of populate it with all kinds of fabulous beasts. Um, But I do think that we can at least start to think about what some of the dimensions, the coordinates of this mind space might be. Things like memory, how much memory, what's the speed of processing. Is there a capacity for valenced emotionality? And probably There are probably multiple measures of consciousness in different ways in a space like this. And if I were uh, to pick one notion, one central notion, for what characterizes mindedness, it would be this. I think minds seek what is meaningful to them in the universe. Uh, Because the the strange but inevitable truth about the nature of reality is that it doesn't have a unique form. It has to be interpreted. And what the mind, what the human mind perceives is not the world, but a reduced representation of it that's useful to us. Um, that, you know, just filters out or captures, you know, a, a subset of, uh, of, of what's out there and decides what is meaningful. And what is meaningful to us, what is useful to us, is, uh, is awarded more value to us. Minds attribute value, and it may be that the emotions are part of the, the, uh, the, the, the processing that attributes value to things. And we don't know what, um, what dictates the limits, the topography of mind space, but I think it has something ultimately to do with information, with how information is filtered from the environment, how it acquires meaning, and how it can be most efficiently organized and used, and what types of embodiment enable it to be collected. Uh, You see, it's one of the deepest mysteries of the universe that that the universe can generate a capacity to know itself because there's nothing in the fundamental laws of nature, so far as we know them, that hints at that capacity. Um, And that, it seems to me, to be a much more remarkable uh, fact that these fundamental laws permit minds than that they permit things like black holes. No one has predicted minds from first principles, from fundamental laws but i suspect that mindedness as much as life itself mindedness is an inherent characteristic of the universe and whether it's common or rare is by comparison a minor question that consciousness that conscious matter exists at all has to make you wonder if at root there is some feature of information that makes that possible and perhaps inevitable Or we might turn that question on its head and say, and wonder whether the laws themselves are contingent on the kinds of mind that perceive and articulate them. And you know, I don't think we can take it for granted that cephalopods and bees and bats carve up the world in quite the same terms that we do. And they're just our neighbors in mind space. And this is precisely why the biologist JBS Haldane advised that we be humble in how we imagine and depict the world in our scheme of things. He wrote, we're just getting at the rudiments of other ways of thinking. I do not feel that any of us knows enough about possible kinds of being and thought to make it worthwhile taking any of our metaphysical systems very much more seriously than those at which a thinking barnacle might arrive. And as we extend our our sensory modalities artificially, then we realize how much we've been missing. We've been missing X-rays and radio waves and gluons and gravitons and dark matter and antimatter. And as Haldane famously went on to put it, he said, my suspicion is that the universe is not only queerer than we suppose, but queerer than we can suppose. And for that reason, he concluded that our only hope of understanding the universe is to look at it from as many different points of view as possible. You could say from as many different mindsets as possible. And for that, then, I think we may find that we need other minds.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers
1: one two three four those are numbers but you already knew that if you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car